Welcome to Living Waters Podcast. Whether you're a lifelong believer, someone seeking spiritual nourishment, or simply curious about the teachings of Christ, this podcast is for you. Thank you for listening and being part of our family. Let's get into Luke chapter 16. I can't even give you my page numbers. It's on page 1737 of my Bible. I don't know what it's in yours. You can follow on the screen, on your tablet, on, on your phone. But if someone's sitting behind someone with a phone, just check over their shoulders that they're not updating their Facebook. Um, just check. Not, not posting rugby scores or anything right now. We're busy with the scriptures. Let's get into it. Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked them the first, how much do you owe the master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. That's about three eggs. The manager told him, <laughs> the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. When people value highly, what people, sorry, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abram replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. 
But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that... This morning we get to dive into Luke chapter 16 and and we count ourselves so blessed and privileged. And we want to thank the forerunners of our faith that made sure that we had the Bible in our hands in a language we can read. Their lives is a blessing to us so that we might stand strong in you. Now, Lord, I pray that you would come and stir our faith so that we might commit to live your word, not just to hear it, but that we might commit to look just like you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So two more parables follow last week's uh, three parables that we did. And, and the first section, the first one, we're gonna, is from verses 1 to 18. And the basic heading here is God and mammon. Now, now this is a fun topic, but uh, the big idea is our heavenly well-being depends on how we have handled the possessions entrusted to us here on earth. Fun realities to deal with, amen? But I know everyone's nervous because Hein is saying things like mammon. I've read things like money and you're checking is the doors locked for this one? But I pray, I really do, that we as Christians would get to a place where we do not want to defend our spending but conform it to God's plan. I'm not going to be talking on tithing today, so relax, you can... I'm talking more about our relationship with finances because that is what Jesus is addressing here. Because Jesus knew then already that there is this this absolute connection between our possessions on earth and and our well-being in heaven that really matters. It really matters. So we have to talk about it because it's in the Bible, amen? Amen. But I know that that it is an incredible privilege for us to do life God's way because I do believe that's the best for us. And in this parable, in the middle, Jesus kind of turns to the, to the Pharisees for a moment. But basically, this whole parable stays around the, the theme of being trustworthy with your possessions. This is, this is where it comes to. It comes down to being trustworthy with the possessions that you have been given. Because first of all, I, I must just say, we're going to understand the, mar- the manager Sorry, just a little bit better. Because this parable is an interesting one. I think it's such a great example of why we must be careful to read the scripture within the context of which it was written. Because if I pull a verse out here out of nowhere and I said uh, the, ma- the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, um, I want to put that above my, my door, you know? If I'm, if I'm dishonest, the master will commend me, right? That's what the Bible says, isn't it? So first of all, this is such a shocking reminder for us to be very careful with which verses we pull out of context and stitch on a pillow. Be very careful because we can be led astray from truth 
if we're lazy with the word of God. That was just for free. That was for free. Now in this parable, we get back here because um, in this few verses, we might see that there's a bit of dishonesty and that the manager is impressed with his dishonesty. But let me assure you, Jesus was not commending dishonesty um, because first of all, there's been many approaches kind of suggested. Maybe the debtors were those who just hired land or anything like that. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter all that much. What we see is someone who, who was very shrewd, very cunning, very smart, with what was entrusted to him. Now here I want to I draw the first distinction. This is very important because everything you have has been entrusted to you by the master. We are in the same position as this manager. Nothing you have is your own. No, you didn't earn it. You worked hard for it. I'm not taking hard work away. But we all get free gifts from God, and then we claim things like, oh, I'm a self-made person, <laughs> you know? <laughs> See, I don't actually, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I don't know why, but I don't actually believe you can make opportunity. But I believe some people are better than, at seeing it than others. But I believe all opportunity is from God. That's truly what I believe. So this approach he takes, it's a shrewd one. It's a dishonest one because he sees that, okay, well, what I can do is I can use this money to win favor with people while I have the opportunity. All right, let's put it to us. I can use my possessions, that which I have been entrusted to at the moment. It's lent to me. By the way, one day we're all going to be dead and our kids are going to spend our money. Praise Jesus. Um, but at the moment, you can use this money for God's glory. At the moment, we have an opportunity that our lives might reflect the glory of God, even in our spending and our relationship with mammon. We find the answer to all this in verse 9. It says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Don't pause there. Go on and say, so that when it is gone, when your time is up, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It's all here about eternity. Jesus is talking about eternity. He's not saying, hey, you know, what, maybe I should use a bit more of an analogy that everyone understands. Hey, put a hundred rand in your, in your license when someone asks for for your license. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about eternal places and using what's lent to us now, worldly wealth, in order to, to uh, increase the internal place. Let me say it like that. But we also know that the Aramaic, you know, what most of this was written in originally, the word for possessions or worldly wealth is basically the mammon of unrighteousness. Now, now money has become a, a word of blessing to us but back then, there was a clear understanding that it's a dangerous thing. It's like keeping a pet snake. It's a lot of fun in a cage, but, but be careful when you take them out. Because at some, at some point, if you're not careful, it will bite you. So they treated worldly possessions, wealth, very carefully. Because while I truly believe it is to be a blessing here on earth, I mean, we know that the Bible says you cannot serve both God and mammon here in verse 10. We know, we know that in 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes and he says that the love of money is the root of all evil. That's an amazing thing. And in Aramaic translation of Deuteronomy 6.5, it says that we should love the Lord our God with all our mammon. 
How crazy is that? See, see, uh, we need to, to shift our perspectives just a little bit when we see money. We need to shift it a little bit. This is something so expressly warned. I mean, Jesus warns. He says, you must be very careful here because this is a God to so many people. And if you're not careful, you're going to fall into that same trap. It's so interesting. Not once does he say you cannot serve both Satan and God. He doesn't warn us about that. He doesn't. It's one of the clearest warnings. He's like, mammon, the wealth of this world. This is what you should be careful of because it's going to creep into your heart in ways that you do not know. That every time a pastor takes a microphone and talks about it, you're going to feel uneasy in your seat because he's challenging your God. He's challenging your idols. You must, you're going to be, this is going to be a tough one. And even while I'm talking, we might be tempted to think of excuses of why this doesn't apply to us. Now, I'm not here. Listen, by no means am I here to tell you, you should not make money. No means. The Bible speaks of, of the righteous man living in inheritance for his children. You're sitting in a building paid with money. This wasn't dropped. Your chair was paid for with money, other people's money that entrusted it to the kingdom of God. This, this is part of this life. The warning is, don't make it your whole part. Don't make it your God. Don't make it everything you think about. Don't make it the last thing you worry about when you go to bed and the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning. Don't make it that. Money should serve us, not us money. Now, this is very important for me because this mention of eternal dwellings, and it indicates that the friends we must make with our worldly wealth is for eternal spaces, not earthly spaces. It's for eternity that, that these things can be an absolute blessing and benefit. Now, we have to talk about some of the theological insights here because it is important. First of all, what you have isn't yours. Change your mind about that. There's no such thing as a self-made person. No such thing. Because even if you think your business is self-made, someone had to buy it from you, so they gave you your money. You didn't do it yourself. Maybe a money printer is a self-made person. Because... But other than that, we all rely on the gifts that we receive from God freely, whether that's financial, talent, abilities, skills, whatever that is, it is from God first and foremost. Everything is His. Everything. Now, this is first. Second, I have to mention a few key insights here. Now, despite its relation to ungodliness, wealth can and should be used in God's service. Wealth can and should be used in God's service. It takes money it takes money. See, we don't give to God or, or tithe to the church so that we can get something from the church. We tithe to the church so that the kingdom of God can be established. That's why we do it. We tithe so that there can be food in the storehouse. Now, I'm just not just talking about physical food. I'm talking about spiritual food that goes beyond just us in this room right now. Abilities to bless other churches richly. That is why we do it, because we are kingdom-minded people. 
kingdom-minded people. Now, the way we use our earthly wealth, and this is a big warning, affects our heavenly well-being. And we're going to see a bit more of that now in the second parable. And thirdly, I do want to note that to love possessions for their own sake puts us in conflict with God's call on us because we cannot serve both God and mammon. To love earthly possessions for their own sake puts us at odds with God. And we must be very careful there. Jesus then makes this incredible statement of little and much, and he, and he talks about that. And, and here, obviously, we know that faithfulness is not determined by the amount you've been entrusted with. It's determined by the character of the person stewarding it. That is what faithfulness is. Now, listen, I, I'm just going to say, we're going to be surprised in heaven when, when those we look down upon right now is going to be appointed over us. We're going to be surprised. When the guy that used his 50 rand wisely and for the kingdom of God is going to be appointed over the guy who has 50 million in his bank account. We're going to get surprises. And this is the reality of it. It's not about how much or how little God has entrusted to you. It's about your character in stewarding what God has given. See, the world counts value. They're like, okay, but where do you live, you know? In what house? How, how many bedrooms? Or what car do you drive? Or that's what we value. That's how we see good character. We go, what is the things I can see, touch, feel? That, that's what I'm going to judge you upon. And Jesus says, not a chance. I want to look at your heart and see what you did with that. Because let me tell you, even the richest person in Sabi is still a peasant compared to I mean, some of the big guys, some of the Elon Musk guys. You think you're rich because you're, you're in a small pond. Let me tell you, there's some big ponds out there. And we must be careful not to get this perspective of power or influence just because we've got more money in a bank account. Some of the most influential people on earth didn't have much possessions. One comes to mind, Jesus. Um, <clears throat> did he not say that the Son of Man has no place to rest his head? And yet he changed the world forever. I want to go on because I want to just, I want to encourage you, man, because sometimes I get it. You feel like, oh, I don't have much. I can't do what that person can or influence like that person can. You're not responsible for stewarding something that God didn't entrust to you. You're responsible for stewarding what he gave you. Do well with that. Do well with that. Don't think about, yeah, but if I, if I do well now, he will entrust me with more, because then your intentions are anyway weird. Character is what counts. Do well with that. That is what you were called to. See, it's not about more, less, bigger, smaller. It's just different. And we're going to have to account for different one day. You're not going to have to give an account for Heinz talents that you used or didn't use. Neither am I going to be held account for yours. But each of us is going to stand before God and say, these are the gifts I gave you. What did you do with them? Were you a shrewd manager? Or did you just build your own wealth? And then Jesus turns to the, the Pharisees, and it's a, it's a rough one. And out of nowhere, he toys this. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now listen, uh, and, and I know 
another tough subject. We don't have too much time to go into this deep. There are few biblical reasons or, or biblical allowances, rather, let me say, because I don't ever think there's a biblical reason. I think there's a biblical allowance for divorce. But Jesus wasn't necessarily talking about, let's look at the blueprint for when you're allowed to divorce and when you're not allowed to divorce. What Jesus was talking about is that marriage is sacred within the kingdom of God. And in this context of stewardship, he puts marriage in the context of what you do with what you're entrusted with, he puts marriage. Now listen, I, and I believe one of the big reasons he does this is because our marriage with our wives and our husbands show the, shows the world the love God has for his church. Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride, and we're supposed to show the world what it would look like when they become the bride of Christ. That's a big call. But here's some good news. Before everyone's like, where's Hein going with this? I'm going to good news. Because there was this for long, this, this rhetoric that divorce in the church is the same as outside the church. Not true. It's not. You should say, amen, thank you. That's good. It's not true. The statistics so clearly point that going to church, you know, focusing on the kingdom, focusing on the church, and, and being, let's call it religious, Breeds better marriages. That is a statistical reality. This is incredible. Professor Bradley writes, I'm reading here, a sociologist at the University of Connecticut, explains from his analysis of people who identify as Christians but rarely attend, attend sorry, that 60% of these have been divorced. Of those who attend church regularly, though, 38% have been divorced. Some estimates are, are 50% less get divorced in church. Whether you're young, old, male or female, low income or not, those who said they were more religious reported higher average levels of commitment to their partners, higher levels of marital satisfaction, less thinking and talking about divorce, and lower levels of negative interaction. These patterns held true when controlling for such important variables as income, education, and age at first marriage. And then it says, these positive factors translated into actual lower risk of divorce among active believers. Now, this should be exciting because what I'm talking about here is that one of the benefits of the kingdom is a healthier marriage. When we put the kingdom first, when we run after God, what happens is our marriages do better. This is a statistical truth. This is a statistical truth when we steward it well. For me, this is just incredible news. Now, I have the best marriage on earth, but, but it is important to realize that when God is not at the center of your marriage, then this statistic starts falling away. Because then we don't do marriage like we've been told. We do marriage as the world does marriage. Marriage where it's all about what I can get from my pastor, not oh, from my pastor. That as well, praise Jesus, but what I can get from my partner. Was it a Freudian slip? I hope not. What I can get from my partner, not what I can bless into my partner. What I can give. How selfless I can be. Can you imagine how different our marriages would have looked if husbands and wives tried to outgive each other? Can you imagine what our marriages would look like? 
But here again, we sit in this difficult space where we're influenced by the world. The world that says, it's about you. It's about you. Don't respect what the Bible says. Man, who, woman are the future, aren't they? People are getting nervous. Hannah's talking about feminism. Marriages where the husbands take the role of the leader in the household. And women step in squarely by, the, by their side to be the nurturers. Man, there's blessing in that. I want to move on because oh, I can talk. Maybe I should just still do one on marriage. There's no time. Takeaways for, for this is so important. First, we have to assess our attitudes towards our possessions, towards mammon, towards our, our, who we are actually serv uh, serving. And we have to be innovative for the kingdom. Second, we have to be faithful, even if you think you have little, because the richest person still does not compare to the riches of God. <laughs> Don't compare. Be a good manager. Don't spend your life comparing and thinking, oh, if only I had. Manage what you have. Finally, the kingdom of God should permeate all our lives, even our marriages. So I want to move on to the second parable that he tells, and he talks about affluence in the afterlife. And the big idea is that material wealth can go with spiritual poverty. And in the end, it is spiritual wealth that matters. Now, this parable is such a key warning to the affluent. There's no question here that there's a warning here to the affluent that treasures in heaven are more important and more valuable than treasures on earth. And this is not the first time Jesus is giving this teaching. You'll remember he spoke earlier about, about um, storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy it. He spoke about put first the kingdom of God. And then everything else will come together. Don't worry first about that. Worry about the kingdom. This is an important message. It's coming up again and again and again. And the central message on wealth, man, is that this world is not the end. It's not the end. See, see if we don't work well with our finances and maybe put a little bit away for our retirement, we'll realize that your working life isn't the end. And then retirement comes and you're in trouble. And in the same way, if we're not careful with the finances and possessions we've been given in this life, we will get a shock one day when we get to the afterlife and see, wait a second, my possessions led me astray, not towards glory. You're thinking, Hein, why are you hammering on this? Because Jesus hammered on it. That's why we're hammering on it this morning. An entire chapter devoted to this I. Dear. Now, the insights from this, because this is one of the most vivid teachings that Jesus actually had on the afterlife, by the way. And there are some clear things that we can learn from this. Number one, that there is such a thing as the afterlife. All right? If anyone ever says there's no such thing, that's not true. Okay? We call that heretics. It is false teaching. When everyone, anyone ever says, yeah, but everyone will, love wins. Love wins, you know. God's love will, won't let anyone go astray. That's not true. Your actions and decisions determines your eternity. It is something that you have control over, where you will be one day. What we learn here is that there is clear teaching that there is eternal suffering and eternal glory. 
And in between, there is a chasm. We also see, by the way, there's no second chance. There's no second chance. Some people's views on eschatology, that is the study of the end times, is that there will be a second chance for everyone who didn't believe. There's no second chance. There's no second chance. Those that we do not lead to Christ right now is eternally far from Him. Eternally far from Him. This life, after death, there will be good and bad. There's a chasm that can't be crossed. There is no second chance of salvation. And that judgment is based on our response to God's will as set out in the Scriptures. This is where this parable is so interesting for me. Because he doesn't talk, this parable doesn't talk about salvation as faith in Jesus Christ. It talks about how well the people lived in accordance with the heart of God in Scripture. It was a warning because people didn't love other people. They loved their own affluence. That was what the warning was about. And here, obviously, we, we have to face something very difficult that to know Christ and Him crucified is not just to know Christ crucified, but to know the life He lived and to live it. See, we cannot get around the, the truth. In Matthew 7, 23, Jesus clearly states that only those who does the will of the Father will inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus' teaching Himself. Now, if I'm rubbing a bit of feathers here in terms of our theological doctrine about salvation, we need to realize this, that knowing Jesus or knowing about Jesus is not enough. Praying the sinner's prayer is not enough. I'm warning you because I love you and I don't want you to end up on the wrong side of the chasm. If we do not do the will of the Father, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Claw. If we do not do the will of the Father, if we do not come in line with the Word, I don't care how uncomfortable it is. I don't care what sacrifices we have to make. It is worth it because it's the only investment that will have eternal benefits. The only investment we can make in this life is to invest our lives into the kingdom of God and to shape our lives according to the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave such a stern warning here. This is Jesus speaking. He's giving this incredible parable. And we see Lazarus, the, the poor man, enjoying glory. Now, now listen, don't, don't think that all rich people are going to hell and all poor people to heaven. This is not at all what Jesus was teaching. But Jesus was saying, hey, what is your regard for those around you? Because if you're only living to enrich yourself and to make yourself comfortable, there's an eternity waiting you that you do not want. Now, I don't want to repeat all the first things in the first parable because there's a lot of similar themes in it. But here we see some realities. We see that how we treat people will have an effect on our eternal setting. How we treat them in terms of our finances and our possessions will have an effect. Whether we actually live out the will of God, the teachings of Jesus Christ will have an effect. Jesus' 
great commission, he didn't say, get people to pray the sinner's prayer. He said, teach them to obey all that I have taught you. Disciple them so that they might look like Jesus. And we as Christians, number one, need to be very careful that first and foremost, we do that. That we live lives that is exemplary so that people might follow what we lead. Paul himself said, follow me as I follow Christ. And I pray that we can all get to that place in our lives where we can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Our marriages should reflect the glory of God in such a way that people will want Jesus when they see the glory of our marriages. Whether you're married for a year or 50, well done. It should reflect the glory of God. We should realize that there's an eternity, not just awaiting us, but awaiting our loved ones, our friends, our family. Now, through this series on the book of Luke, this has come up several times because that is why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. This is still what the kingdom is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to take people away from damnation and bring them towards glory. The kingdom of God is not here to line our pockets. It's not here to make us comfortable. In fact, Jesus said several times, it is going to make you an outcast. You're going to be hated. You're going to be persecuted. Following Jesus is not about clout and acceptance. Following Jesus is about the kingdom. And the reality of heaven and hell is there. We know hell awaits those who do not repent and follow Christ. Do not allow those who you love to go down that road. There is no second chance for them. And unless you're okay with them burning for eternity, do something about it. Risk your friendship. Risk your relationship. Risk your family. Because God's not going to go, well done, Hein, at least you didn't lose a friend, you know. <laughs> Look at Fricky and Al, but hey, you had some good relationships on earth. Well done. Not a chance. Use your position. Use your possessions so that the kingdom might receive what it is due. I know that today is a tough one and that, you know, we have to, as I say, we can't skip verses. And, and today was one of those where we just had to take on head on and talk about our relationship with money. Now, now last thing I want to say about that, then I want to close for us. Don't worry. But the enemy has gotten it right that, that he lies about the benefits of money and we fall for it. He lies that money will give you security. If you have a big bank account, you're fine. Nothing can ever go wrong. Right? And then the first time the stock market drops, the bank closes, because that happens. Someone breaks in and takes what is yours. You see there's no security in money. Money promises you health. It does. Because as long as you have a medical aid, nothing can ever go wrong. Just get a better medical, medical aid. Money can buy you health. No, it cannot. No, it cannot. So we start serving mammon because, well, it can give us security and health. The enemy goes on. He goes on and he says, well, it can buy you position. It can buy you position. And then I see so often how rich people fall because, number one, they think they are self-made. 
It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven because they become self-sufficient. I've, did this, I've done this for myself. The enemy has gotten it right to seep these kind of doctrines into our lives and our relationship with money is warped. And today I want to challenge you. I really want to. I want you to ask earnestly, what is my relationship to my possessions? Is my house my security or is my security in Jesus Christ? Is my hope in my savings account and my retirement annuity, which is all good, by the way, these things aren't bad. I'm saying serving these things is where it goes off whack. And then I want to challenge you and ask you, where's your friends going? Where's your family going? Where's your kids going? Where's your parents going? Because there's an eternity awaiting us that there's no escape from. There's glory or there's damnation. I want to pray for us, Lord. As we deal with these, these challenging topics, God, we, we so need your Holy Spirit to, to guide us in, in how to apply these difficult realities in our lives. We recognize, Lord, that, that these are, are often the verses that skipped because it's tough to deal with these things. But today we want to, full of courage, take it on and say, Lord, we still want your will for our lives. We don't want to hang on to some false perception of truth. We want your whole truth, and we want to shape our lives around it. Because it is the only way for us. So I pray first and foremost, Lord, that you would help us not to have an unhealthy attitude or relationship with our possessions or our finances. I pray, Lord, that we would steward them well, but never become worshipers of things. I pray that we would do well with what's been entrusted to us, but always keep our eye on the prize. I thank you, Lord, that, that you did warn us about this, that this is no surprise to us. And then, Lord, I also want to pray, God, for, for each and every one of us that, that have loved ones that we know is not serving you. I pray, Lord, for their hearts to be prepared. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften the soil so that we can plant seeds. I pray, God, that we might have the right conviction, the right attitude, the right patience, the right wisdom to approach those we love with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might leave them, lead them away from death and into your eternal glory. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to risk relationships. I would pray that we would have the courage to risk even what we might perceive as our names, our, our pride, so that those we love, those we know, those we work with, will not end up in the wrong place, that they will not end up on the wrong side. Because, Lord, we... We want to love people like you love them. And we want to lead people like you lead them. So thank you, Lord, for this, this message, even though it is challenging. I thank you, Lord, that when we dive into these kind of topics, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And that is our ultimate goal here, Lord. 
is to love you, to have relationship with you, and to look more and more like you in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.